trust that God is a blessing there. Leela asked me the other day, said, when, when will Paul and Rhonda come back? And I said, when Grandma is ready to come back. <laughs> but we're thankful that uh, the Lord has blessed them with a, with a new child and a new life, a new world for them. And uh, but we thank the Lord for it. I'd like to ask you to turn to the book of Zechariah, the fourth chapter. The mercy of God is that attribute which we, the fallen sinful race of Adam, Stand in need of. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 7. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof. And shoutings, crying, grace, grace, unto it. Father, thank you for this opportunity to speak your word this morning. We thank you for these who have come together today. May you bless each one. And may we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be able to see some wonderful things concerning God's grace for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We stand in need of grace. God has been pleased to manifest this attribute more than any other, according to our need. Even as children of God, we are administered grace day by day. You know, the wonders of divine sovereign grace are the greatest of all of God's wonders. Now, we know that love is the mother of all of God's attributes. From God's divine sovereign love comes all other things pertaining to man. And grace is born out of God's love for us. So we know that there are great wonders of divine power and His wisdom and His creation and the, the grace of His justice and His mercy and all of these things are amazing. Even there's been a song, many songs actually written concerning His grace, but one who's probably known throughout all the world is that song... Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And so we look at all these wonders, and how can we say anything less than the prophet cries out here, grace, grace. It's the sound of the gospel, grace. It will be that shout which will ring throughout all Eternity in heaven. Grace. Grace. 
This is the song that the angels sang when the Lord Jesus was born. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 13 and 14, and suddenly there was a, was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Then Luke chapter 15, 10, Likewise I say unto you that there is joy in the presence of all the, of the angels of God over one sinner that repented. So the, the gospel is born out of God's loving grace. These two prophets that, uh, they're, I believe that their prophecies are probably pretty closely contemporary to one another. They were sent to comfort and encourage the people who had been released from the captivity of Babylon under uh, King Cyrus to go back home and to build the temple and to build the city again. But they met a lot of opposition from certain ones who had moved into this territory uh, after Nebuchadnezzar invaded and took captive most of the people out of the land these people moved in and tried to take control of the land. But the older priests and the Levites were disheartened, really, that the new temple did not have that grandeur that Solomon's temple had. Solomon's temple was the most magnificent site that man had ever seen. A building that was built and designed by God himself. And but but we also read in Ezekiel chapter three and verse twelve said, But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men and had been had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with loud voice, and many shouted for joy, because even though it wasn't Solomon's temple, it was nevertheless the temple that God had given them and they were able to resume their worship and their, uh, and their, uh, 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 ceremonies that they, they uh, loved so well and, and expressed themselves to God through these things. So in, uh, in Haggai chapter two and verse three through nine, the prophet there speaks of the coming kingdom of Christ. And this temple here was a, a type of the temple that we shall see yet in the future. And here's what Haggai says, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. The glory of this coming temple of God uh, in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ will be greater than all other temples have ever been, uh, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. So Zechariah, in his prophecy, Who art thou, O great mountain? 
before Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was sent to be the governor uh, of the uh, of the uh, of the uh, Jerusalem or uh, of uh, Judea there when when they went back to restore. Old Zerubbabel uh, shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof, shouting. Crying, shoutings, crying, grace, grace unto it. Now this passage of Scripture uh, is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Zerubbabel is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who is going to come and set up His kingdom and His temple sometime in the future. He will set up the greatest of all kingdoms and rule and reign from the grandest of all temples ever. The headstone, as mentioned here in Zechariah 4, <coughs> is the final stone that is laid on the top, the last stone that's laid, the headstone. And this, of course, is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Now, we first want to notice that grace, grace, because of the work of Christ. The fall of Adam brought about the grace of God in redemption. If Adam had not sinned and remained obedient to the law, he would have whereof to boast himself. Adam would have said, well, I've been a good person and I've kept the law of God and now I'm entitled to all the grace that God has. I'm entitled to this garden that He provided because I've, I've been obedient. Adam's sin was a sin of rebellion. It was not just a sin of disobeying God's simple command. It was a sin of rebellion against God. And I think uh, we, we must not miss that part of it. Sin is not just disobeying a law. Sin is a, an attitude of rebellion against God. And that's what happened to Adam. So uh, his sin was re- an act of rebellion against God's authority. And, uh, and so giving over to the devil. If God had been any less than what he was, he would have left Adam in his sin. He would have have allowed Adam to go into eternity without grace, without any grace. And uh, so if we... uh, You see, God had no need... For Adam. God didn't create man because he needed something. God is self-sufficient, self-sustaining. God is complete within himself. He needs nothing. He did not create man that he might be fulfilled or that he may have joy or that he may uh, be complete in some way. That was not the purpose of it at all. God created man 
in his own, for his own grace, uh, that he might bring grace, uh, uh, that he might manifest grace in man. So, if he, if he needed more creatures, then he could have created another thousand worlds or another thousand atoms. But he did not need God, Adam, he did not need man whatsoever to be complete in himself. God chose to redeem fallen man by and through his own free grace. He did that that he might manifest himself to man. By his infinite power and by his infinite wisdom, God created all things by and for himself, yet to redeem man from his sin, he must pay the price of his own justice. God is holy, and God's justice is an eternal justice. Everything about God is eternal, and God's justice is, is eternal. And so when man rebelled against him in order to redeem man, he must pay for his sin to satisfy his own justice. Otherwise, he's not truly God. He's not a holy God. He must satisfy his own holiness and his own holy law, Either each individual of, of Adam's race, which includes every human being that ever has been born or ever will be born, each individual of the human race must pay the price for his own sin or God must pay it for him. The only way that man can pay for his own sin is to spend his eternity in the consequence of God's justice, which is uh, uh, hell itself. And so the Son must leave glory, leave his place of glory, take up on himself the form as it uh, is recorded in the book of Philippians, the form of a man, the form of a servant, become in likeness of sinful flesh, suffer the humiliation and the punishment of God's justice, and shed his blood for man's sin. That's what must occur in order for man to be redeemed. But we notice... There's grace. Grace, grace, because the Son of Man offered Himself. Now, among the heathen, it was thought that if a, in order to please the gods, they had to make the ultimate sacrifice, and we read about this in various different places in the Scriptures where the heathen would offer their own sons as an offering to the gods to appease the gods in their anger. But here's good news. This is what the gospel is, the good news. Here's the good news. Instead of me offering my own son, 
God has offered His own Son for me. And God's, the offering of God's Son has appeased His justice. Out of His own goodness and His own grace, He chose a number of Adam's race, that fallen, sinful, rebellious race, to redeem them and to set them free. Therefore, we read in Psalms 107, verse 2, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. And so Zechariah, in chapter 4, says, Let them cry, Grace, grace unto it. So God has provided eternal happiness to man and requires nothing in return to all who receive Him. That's grace. That's the definition of grace. The application of redemption is all of grace. God has sent His Son. The Son has offered Himself. And the only thing left for man is to exercise his free will and receive the gift of eternal life. But there's a problem. There's a problem with that. Yes, man has a free will. He does. The problem is his will is tainted. His will is contaminated. His will is depraved. And because of that... He is helpless, and because of that, he is continues to be rebellious against God. He despises God, and he is enmity against God, and would not come if he was able to, and cannot come even uh, because he is restricted by his own depravity, his own depraved will. Ephesians chapter 2 or chapter 1 uh, gives us <coughs> that explanation. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessing and in heavenly places. That's grace. That's God's grace. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. And then we read in the second chapter, verse 9, uh, 8 and 9, for by grace, especially verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. So, since man is in such a condition as he is, and since God's justice cannot be violated, and God is holy and is bound by His own holiness, to satisfy His justice against sinful man, sending His own Son as a sacrifice for man's sin, 
Yet man incapable of receiving that by faith, God in His mercy and in His loving grace imparts faith to that man that he might receive the Lord Jesus Christ. What grace. What wonderful grace. Man despising God and despising the Lord Jesus Christ by nature, sinful and rebellion, wicked in all of his thoughts and all of his ways, and yet God in his mercy and in his grace has chosen to impart faith to some of these that they might receive the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But let us not bemoan the fact that God did not choose all of mankind to redeem, but rather cry, grace, grace, to the God of grace. Who art thou, O man, that repliest against God? The next thing to think about is the attitude in which God offered the sacrifice. It's not that God offered His sacrifice in anger or impatience or reluctance, but He offered His sacrifice, His own Son, He offered in kindness and patience and willing love, as according to John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That is, it pleased the Lord to bruise his son. He hath put his son to grief. When thou shalt make his soul, that is the soul of his son, an offering for sin, the son shall see his seed. That is, he shall see the product in which he has produced through his death, the salvation of souls. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days that he might offer that sacrifice and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The results shall be as they were determined to be throughout all eternity. The beloved son did not complain about this. The father did not do it reluctantly. The son did not complain or try to reason his way out of it, but willingly and lovingly offered himself for our redemption. Psalms 40. Verse 6, this also is found quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Hebrews. But he says, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not despise. Mine ears hast thou opened, burnt offering and sin offering hast thou got, hast thou not required. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law 
is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. This is what we call a psalm of the Messiah. A psalm which makes direct reference to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this is what we read in the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Keeping in mind that Jesus did what he did with joy for his people. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before him, being that he was that he was given a people to redeem, and he joyfully, willingly, lovingly shed his blood, suffered and died for their redemption to satisfy the justice of God. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, He loved us so, and He desired so to bestow His grace upon us. Endured the cross, despising the shame. Naturally, had He not despised the shame, He would not be righteous. Despising the shame, and sat down on the right hand of of the throne of God. And so may we rejoice in our blessed redemption through the shed blood of the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. Let us, let us cry, grace, grace unto it. Let us rejoice in the salvation of many to come, many to come before, after us. Perhaps the Lord will save many after us. Even this very day, perhaps, God would be pleased to bring someone to Himself in this church, in this church service. Let us cry out, grace, grace, unto Him and unto it for His great work. Thirdly, grace, grace, because the work of Christ is sufficient. There was no need for anything else. What vast difference between there is a, between a poor and a miserable sinner full of sin condemned to the pits of hell and a saint clothed in the robes of glory. What a stark difference there is, but that's the difference that God, Christ's blood makes for the sinner. You go from one thing to the other. You are transformed. You are born again. You are regenerated through the power of the Holy Spirit uh, in salvation. Imagine the poor, wretched, miserable sinner is none other than that saint who has been made righteous by the grace of God. Those who refuse the grace of Almighty God and attempt to attain heaven 
some other way bring great dishonor to God as well as to the Son and the Holy Spirit. How provoking to God it must be for a miserable, helpless, wretched, wicked sinner to try to take credit for anything much less the salvation of the soul. The sinner is not given an opportunity to purchase his own salvation, but to lay hold on the salvation which has already been secured. And why is it that the sinner, having been offered free salvation by and through the free grace of God, will refuse and choose rather to gain it some other way, hoping that his own good works will balance the scale of God's judgment. It will never happen. It can never happen. It would be contradictory to the very holiness of God. Man is not capable. And why is it that the sinner having done this? It is because of his inherent prideful nature and his blind notion that he is not as bad as the Bible says. I used to think this way myself. I can remember that. I was 24 years old when I was saved, and before that I thought, I can't possibly be as bad as, uh, the, as the Bible describes some sinners But folks, the Holy Spirit revealed the truth to me and the most horrible truth that I've ever learned in my life that yes, I am a wicked, sinful, wretched sinner. I am helpless. I am alienated from God. I am in a condition and a situation where I must die an eternal death except for the grace of God. But the sinner, it is true, even though thou hast, thou may say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, you do not know, do not understand that thou art wretched and poor and miserable and blind and naked before God. It's because in his enmity the sinner would rather spend eternity without God than to admit his own guilt and sinfulness. One would think that given the freeness of salvation and the simplicity of the gospel, that it would not be necessary for ministers such as myself and Brother Paul and others to give this earnest call for sinners to receive it. You would think that it would not be necessary for the minister to call for sinners to repent, given the Bible is so clear on the subject. You would think they would come voluntarily to the cross. 
One would think that the sinner, having heard the glorious news, would immediately come running to the cross after hearing his own fate and helplessness, his hopeless condition, and the freeness of salvation, and the grace, the great grace, the great price that has been paid, and the love in which it was paid, and the completeness of it, and the eternality of it, and, and but no, no, that is not to be. For the sinner is dead and will not respond to the call separate and apart from the awakening of the Holy Spirit. How indignant for someone to, uh, in this life, in a life-threatening situation, if a person were to risk their life to go and to, to rescue you and you say, never mind, I'll do it myself. Yet the sinner every day curses the very God who only, who only can save him from his sins. Yes, you may feel good about your religion. You may feel good about the fact that you go to church. But your soul is in rebellion against God and in danger of hellfire. Though urged and called upon and warned by the word and the preaching of the of, of repentance, the sinner will turn a deaf ear and snub his nose and reject the tender call of God because he is inherently depraved. But let the saints and let the sinner take heed. And to the dear saints who have tasted that the Lord is gracious and been blessed by the comfort of the Holy Spirit, shall we not be stirred in our hearts for the salvation of those lost souls among us? Are we not, cons are we to be consoled our, and console ourselves by, uh, uh, thinking that, well, God is going to call his elect out anyway. Uh, that is a, not only is that a fatalist attitude, but that's a sinful attitude. The Lord didn't say, never mind, you just sit where you are, I'll call my elect when I get ready. Did he, did he say that? Can anyone give me a scripture where that's said? What did he say? He said, Go ye and teach all nations. He said, Go and preach the gospel to every creature. He said, Go and seek out my people. Shall we not weep and mourn over the souls of our brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, husbands or wives? friends, neighbors. Shall we cease to pray because 
they just uh, they're not going to be saved anyway they're too too sinful to save if that's the case then I wouldn't be saved I promise you that let all the saints of God cry grace grace under the God of grace and I ask you sinner if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ and you know you haven't if you're, if you're saying, well, I don't know if I'm saved or not, well, you're probably not. If there's a doubt, you're probably not. I'm not saying you're not, but you're probably not. And if you have that doubt, then the best way to do is to clear up that doubt is to trust Christ today. Anew. Trust Him today. Is the blood of Christ not enough for you? Is there more that you need or more that you, than you, more that you expect from God? And I must say to you that we're not worthy of the least of the blessings of God. None of us are. Much less the gift of His precious Son and the shed and His shed blood. We're not worthy of that. But He's done enough. He's done all that there is to do. God was satisfied in the work that the Son did. Never in the Bible does it say that God was satisfied with the work that I did. God is never satisfied with the sinner and cannot be because He's holy. It had to be a holy sacrifice. If you can see that sacrifice this morning and you see your need, then I urge you to trust Him today. Even if there's a doubt, you say, well, I might be saved. Well, you may not. Trust Him today. Start today and get it clear. Get it settled and take away that doubt and have joy instead of doubt. May God bless you this morning in the preaching of His Word.